Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS, and with me, hooray, back from a protracted period of land agency, <laughs> is the effortlessly feudal Thea I've put Lenaduzzi. a lot of effort into being so feudal. Yeah. It's taken it, me four months to be so feudal. Has anyone ever called you feudal before? Uh, no. Do you feel feudal? Um, now you're a landowner? Now you're a... Yes, now I now I preside over vast swathes tracts. of Sussex. Yeah, vast tracts of land. <laughs> but you're back. I am back. You're now Hello. commuting from Sussex. I am. And you're enjoying it. I am. Day two. Day two, it's all it's going brilliant. Well. Yes, you <laughs> Swimmingly. Do seem, you do seem really happy. Maybe because for the for two weeks of buying a house, you were absolutely wretchedly miserable. Yes. And we don't need to. Spend, we were going to spend we the podcast yep. slagging off estate agents. But we don't need to do that now. Yeah, we can just we can just file it away as as something that has has done, it's yeah. run its course, and now I'm there. I should say I do not own vast oh, tracts of land. No. <laughs> I own no a very no. small <laughs> small house. No one takes what we say in this podcast either literally or seriously. <laughs> I'm almost positive. If you want to subscribe to the TLS, Google TLS subscriptions and type Pod One in the offer code section. You can get six issues for six pounds. Coming up on the show this week. Was Matthew Arnold any good as a poet? A provocative question asked and answered this week by Seamus Perry, who thinks that Arnold was pretty good even when he was being deliberately bad. A paradox he shall explain later. Transgender people are immediately often treated as instant experts in their own field. People, according to Stephanie Burt, may come up and ask you to teach them Trans 101 while you are still learning who you are and how you got there and who you can now try to be. Stephanie will be on hand to say what books by trans people can help in the general education process. And Thea has been speaking to the wonderful Mexican novelist Valeria Luiselli. Go on, how would you do it? Luiselli, Valeria Luiselli. Valeria Luiselli. About her book, Tell Me How It Ends, an account of life in New York's immigration courts and her own memoir of being a Mexican woman in the United States. We shall have a chunk of that interview now and the whole interview will be played as a special podcast too. The Mexican-American relationship has been much in the news recently, mostly via discussion of illegal aliens, of the building of vast and expensive walls, of instant deportations, 
of dreamers being abruptly woken up. But what stories are not being told, either enough or at all? In 2014, an unprecedented rise in the number of unaccompanied and undocumented Mexican and Central American children arriving at the US border resulted in draconian new policies. This in turn drove the Mexican-born New York-based writer Valeria Luiselli, herself an alien at the time, anxiously awaiting an elusive green card, to take on the role of interpreter and translator, helping to steer the children through the immigration courts. Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 Questions, is the result, a meditation structured around the 40 questions asked to the children by lawyers building their case. And the answers spell the difference between being allowed to stay, and if so, on what terms, or being turned away. Luiselli came into the studio to discuss the ongoing crisis, America's role in it, and where she positions herself as a writer. What follows is an excerpt from a longer interview, which you'll find in full in your podcast feed. I began by asking Valeria how the book came about. I first heard about the crisis in 2014, and I wrote this book about a year later. I wrote it as, as, as a result of one year, basically, or a bit more than one year working in court as a, an interpreter, translator, screener for children. There was a huge need at that time for people who could translate between English and Spanish, Spanish and English, because, as you may know, in the U.S., Everyone speaks Spanish except lawyers and maybe editors. So they're, they're two very monolingual worlds. And so I was among the, the many, many volunteers that arrived in, in, those, in those months to, to listen to kids' stories and translate them into English and write them down in order to have something to start with and hopefully find a pro bono lawyer for that child. How did you, I mean, you have a very specific role in all of this. How did you understand your role as a, a translator and an interpreter, the two things not, not being the same thing? How, how did you find, what did you find that you were doing? What was your role? And perhaps you could talk a bit about the importance of language because you, you set it very much, the problem, as being one about reframing things with the language that you use. I mean, court interpreting is, is, is an art on its own, and I had no previous formal training as a court interpreter or as a simultaneous interpreter. It, it, it really is a very difficult thing to do. And I did have some, some basic training in translation, but it, it's, it's not also not, not my area. You know? So I had, I had to learn quickly and, and a lot. Um, but I think... What was clear from the beginning is that there was an overlap of several forms of translation. So there was, first of all, the very literal uh, sense of carrying over what children said in Spanish into English. But then there was also a kind of translation from an adult language, uh, a bureaucratic language, to the language that a child might understand. So, so often some of the questions in the questionnaire are incomprehensible for a child, such as, uh, did anyone in your former country uh, need and have access to mental health insurance? Th th there's no way to, to have a conversation. And the point of the interview, with it, an, an intake interview with a child in court, is to, to really get as much information from a child so that a case can be built, and with that case, a pro bono lawyer found. So it, it, make, it makes no sense to try to follow this very sort of bureaucratic, uh, brutal 
language. Uh, so there's an interp there's a level of interpreting there, interpreting and translating and re rephrasing. Um, and then there's there's other very just fine layers, complex threads that have to do with sort of cultural translation, if I may say it like that. For example, I'm a Chilanga, which means I'm from Mexico City. A lot of the kids that I interview are catrachos, which means they're from Honduras. And Hondurans are not very fond of Mexicans, and for a good reason, you know, because Mexico is a, is a country that has always treated Hondurans with, with, with great cruelty, and much more so in recent immigration waves. Uh, a lot of people get killed, uh, disappeared. So there's there's a kind of difficult negotiation in 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 our in the, t in the terms that I use when I interview a child from Honduras. And I remember the one of the one of the first kids I interviewed, and he's someone I talk about in the book. He said, "What are you?" And I said, "Well, I'm I'm not a gringa." And he said, "So what are you?" And I said, "Well, I'm a chilanga." And he said, "Well, I'm a catracho, which means we're enemies." And I said, "Well, yeah, but we're only enemies in football and." <laughs> I suck at it, so you've already scored five goals against me, so let's get on with this, right? And he kind of smiled, and he almost laughed, and he, and he, he, he I didn't gain his trust, but maybe I, I, I did at least uh, get his attention. Mm -hmm. And he was a teenager, so it was a d more difficult kind of interaction. So at, uh, the whole time I had to negotiate with, with these very invisible threads um, that bind us and also separate us, right? This is Manuel you're talking about, I think. Yes. He, you, you describe his story as obsessing you through the book, and I guess that's because he, perhaps more than any of the others, really brings home the extent to which the US is implicated in all of this, how symbiotic the relationship is there. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about, about that, his particular story. Yes, exactly. That's a really good way of putting it. So, so Manuel, whose who story I tell in great detail, in the book, and, and who is a person that I'm st that I'm still in contact with, with him and his whole family, and partly for bad reasons, uh, basically because his case is ongoing. And although he now has some form of Im immigration relief, he doesn't have a green card, and it's not clear if he will ever. But um, he he arrived in 2014, and I interviewed him in court in his first notice to appear in the early months of 2015. So I was his first kind of court screener, right? And he was my f my first case. He had he had been basically persecuted by gangs in his home country in in Honduras. He refused to to join a gang despite the the great pressure that was put on him. He actually went to the police at some point and um filed a report and nothing was done. And one day he, he, he was just getting out of school with his best friend and he noticed that boys from that gang, not only boys, but sort of older, older men too from that gang, were waiting for him outside the school and that there were many, so that he, there, there was no, ch no, no chance in fighting them. So he left walking, pretending not to notice, not to see, just not, not acknowledging their presence. And they started walking after him and his friend. At some point, um, they took out guns. So they, so so Manu and his friend started running, and uh, the gang members shot Manu's best friend right there in front of him as as they tried to run away. You know, shot him in the back, and Manu kept on running. He kept on running, and he eventually made it home and safe. 
and he called that night he called an aunt that he has in Long Island who had migrated years earlier and told her the story and she said don't worry I understand this is that your life is at risk I'm gonna get you over here whatever that costs me and she did she paid a coyote to get him over to the US coyote being a people smuggler basically someone who who crosses children or adults across um, national borders so coyote took Manu over to the US and he t Manu turned himself in at the border. The coyote d didn't didn't cross the the, the deserts with him. He just deposited Manu at the U.S. border. And Manu, as most kids, turned looked looked for for border patrol to turn himself in as soon as possible. Often kids, by the way, would tell me in court that they that the worst the worst would be not to find a policeman, like to get to the desert and then just be in the middle of the desert with no one there. So deposited by a coyote and no policeman in sight. So, peop so, so, so so children usually in groups or sometimes alone walk, just walk through the most transited way, um, highways and roads, just waiting for a, a, a policeman and border patrol to appear. Mm, because in effect, in, until you exist in the system, you don't exist at all. Right, right. I mean, not only is crossing the desert if you're a child on your own practically in, um, impossible, but if you do cross it and actually survive and manage to get to the first town and arrive to a point where there's water and food, you'll be a ghost, basically, because no one caught you and so you're not in the system and then your destiny is to, to remain undocumented for the rest of your life. And that's not what, what these children want. And that's not what uh, international law uh, dictates, by the way. No? These, all, these children, because of the situation, they're fleeing, like Manu, fleeing a systematic persecution, not of a government, but of a kind of parastate, which is what gangs have become, mm. right? They own, they have a justice system, they traffic arms, they traffic drugs, they have, uh, they almost have their own currency. I mean, they don't, but they, they are like a parallel economy and a parallel uh, government. So international laws that protect refugees, if someone is persecuted by a group, a political group, or a government uh, for certain kind of reasons. There's four or five very clear categories of what, what makes you eligible for, for asylum. But if you're running, if you're being persecuted for any one of those reasons, uh, you are eligible for, for asylum. So these kids are, by international standards. They just need to find a lawyer to make their case. So when Manu arrived finally in the U.S. safe, he received this notice to appear. I interviewed him in court, and while I was interviewing him, he took out a piece of paper that was this report, this this uh, report that he'd filed in the police, denouncing the fact that that there was this group of of, of men, young young men, boys, and older men from a gang that had constantly harassing him. And when I saw that. Uh, although I'm not a lawyer, I thought, well, maybe you know, this this is this looks like some kind of evidence, so let's let's ask. And I called over the lawyer that had given me the basic training to start interviewing the kids, and she, and she said, that's it. You don't have to even continue with interview. This gives us a really solid case. And so Manu luckily received immediately. He got really great pro bono lawyers, basically like huge firm that does some pro, pro bono work who took on his case, because it was a, a kind of easy case, you know, and mm. a case that, that would be won. And they did win the 
case in some ways. They, he, he has a type of protection right now called the SIG visa. It's a special juvenile, immigrant juvenile status. But what happened beyond the court is that when Manu started going to school, he started being bullied by gangs in his school in Long Island. Ones that he recognized, ones, ones that effectively connected right back to where he'd come from. Exactly. Um, there was the MS-13, which uh, had been present in Honduras and he'd been fleeing, and there was Barrio 18, another gang that he'd been fleeing. So he did not know, but it turned out that in Hempstead, Long Island, there were exactly the same gangs that he was trying to flee from in Honduras. So this realization, a lot of kids don't know when they arrive to the U.S. that maybe they're trapped in a kind of nightmare that they cannot wake up from, mm. right? Because the gangs are not, they're, they're not a couple of drug dealers standing in a corner. They're, they're really like, they're <laughs> I was talking about kind of parastates, but they're, all, they're like transnational parastates. Mm. They have an immense power. I mean, no one really knows, but the MS-13 has maybe more than 60,000 members. And these, you know, these are people with guns, people with, with a kind of fearless, uh, and, and, and no res- fearless attitude to life, but, but also no respect for life, right? Mm. So that's what, that's what the U.S. often does not acknowledge. And how much do you think that there's been a growing awareness, or in fact the opposite in, in terms of the general public? I know, of course, that your your book is being um, has been billed as you know the first book to read for the Trump era, but you know it predates that um, because, in fact, when you start writing, it's it's about policies that came into effect during the Obama administration. So, where are we now? What what's the climate? What what's changed since President Trump came into power? I mean, everything is worse, but of course, all these policies started long before Trump existed. I mean, everyone has been somehow complicit, and the Democrats have 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 not been better, at least for immigrant lives, right? Mm. There's maybe more education on the matter now because more people are writing about it in spaces that are are more visible, perhaps. So it's there's more awareness that that this particular immigration crisis is is not really an immigration crisis but a but a refugee crisis and that the the the, the United States is implicated in it historically uh, I go into into why that is in the book I, reasons exact reasons of, of the of its implication and also in the shared responsibility of, of the governments of the USA Mexico and the Northern Triangle and I argue in the book that until all our governments acknowledge their shared responsibility, there, there, there will be no solution either for transnational gangs or their victims, which, which are children most of the time, children and, and minors. Uh, the, the Trump situation is not going to make any of this better because, they, I mean, the way that, they, that he and the White House manipulate information is, I mean, I don't even have to go into that, but... For example, Trump was in Long Island uh, a few months ago, and he spoke about he spoke of the gangs there, the MS-13 and so on, in in complete false terms. He said what he usually said: these gangs are pouring into the U.S. from the from the U.S.-Mexico uh, border, and that's why we need a wall and we have to stop these gangs from coming in. Those gangs were born in L.A., not in Central America. They're not a local problem that. 
that that is being exported or imported into the U.S. The the MS-13 was an L- L.A. Mm. L.A. gang as well as Barrio 18. Many people don't know that, and it's and and it's easy to manipulate and hide that fact. Yeah, and, and it's such a central part of the story yeah. that you can't ignore that detail. I mean, I suppose it's interesting in in that respect as well that um, I saw that refugee admission has now been capped at an all-time low. Absolutely, that's what happened now. I mean, I was talking about Manu's particular case earlier, uh, the fact that the last time I spoke to his lawyers, which was not even a week ago, to ask them what the updates were for his renewal of his current immigration status and for his green card, which he applied for uh, more than a year ago. And the answer was, the green card is there's a big backlog and they won't come uh, until further notice because the answer was there there are no more green cards for for Central American children that are trying to to get an adjustment of status from a refugee status to a, to a resident status just there's simply no more the latest update from the White House nightmare is that the government wants to among other things deport children as soon as they arrive at the Mexico-U.S. border, um, regardless of their nationality, and not allow, not 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 give them due process, not allow them to go through through legal proceedings, as is, by the way, what is constitutional and and what and what international and national law dictates. So, I mean, I don't I don't think this will happen, be, and, or not immediately, because it it, it would be illegal. But the law has been changed before. That law used to include children from all over the world, and Bush changed it in 2007 to exclude from it children from Mexico and Canada. Really, de facto. Countries that share borders exactly. with, with the US. Exactly. So, de Uris, uh Mexico and Canada, but de facto only Mexico. So, so it's been done before, and they can find a way, and they will certainly find a way to try to exclude um, children from Central America, but it, it it won't it won't be an immediate it won't be immediate because it's I think I mean a lot of lawyers working that have been working on this for a long time I think I hope will find ways to to protect as many children that especially the ones that are already there and are in a, in an immigration limbo right like Manuel yeah thank you very much I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there thank it's been you, a, it's yeah. been a pleasure speaking to huge you huge pleasure thank you very much. This year is the 150th anniversary of Matthew Arnold's new poems in which Dover Beach appeared. Its conclusion is, of course, rather famous. And we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. So, was Matthew Arnold any good? A provocative question by Seamus Perry, who goes on rather brilliantly to answer it in the TLS this week. He certainly reveals the perhaps surprisingly low regard in which Arnold has been held by many since Arnold's own time. Keats's editor, Henry Buxton Foreman, said this. From his poems, taken as a body, it is difficult to imagine how pleasure or profit is to be extracted, for the style is unpoetic in the extreme and the sense of rhythm and sound faulty to the last degree. And T.S. Eliot quoted received wisdom when he complained, I'm not sure he was highly sensitive to the musical qualities of verse. So what are we to make of Arnold the poet now? We can have no better guide than Seamus Perry, who is on the line with us. Seamus, welcome. 
Uh, let's talk about Matthew Arnold's reputation as it currently stands and whether it's shifted over time. Because you, you paint a, a picture in the piece where, which almost implies that he's always been slightly looked down upon as a poet. Is that fair? Yes, well, he has a, a double reputation, really, because, of course, as well as being a poet, he's a great man of letters and social commentator and, and political thinker. And I think his reputation in the 20th century is largely the second of those two things. It's the prose Arnold that was important, I think, for lots of the uh, lots of the 20th century, um, of, uh, very often as someone who people wanted to attack. So he was important enough to need to disagree with. Uh, and that's as true of T.S. Eliot as it is of Terry Eagleton. I mean, he always represented a certain kind of literary liberalism that they wanted to attack. Uh, as as a as a poet, his his reputation has is as 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 you as you just uh, as you just said always had this slightly kind of ambiguous quality, in that he was recognised as being an important writer, uh, recognised as being a writer who was important partly because he captured, as it were, the temperature of the age in this extraordinary way, in the way that maybe W. H. Auden does in the 1930s, or Philip Larkin does in the 1950s. That sort of zeitgeist kind of voice. Um, but at the same time, lots and lots of his most attentive readers were forced to, to say things like, you know, he, he actually wasn't terribly competent. Uh, Saintsbury, for example, talks about the incompetences of expression, which are so oddly characteristic of him. So it's a peculiar reputation which was made which interested me and maybe you want to write something about it uh, th this is the beginning of one of his sonnets we'll talk about a couple of other poems because you, you quote extensively in the piece uh, but the beginning of one of his sonnets says who prop thou axed in these bad days my mind yeah i've not read very well but uh, and virtually it's everybody it's, it's virtually impossible, impossible to, to read it well it's, and indeed to, and virtually <laughs> everybody in the history of lit literary criticism has nominated this for the worst opening line in the english sonnet but, Right. Do you begin to defend this? Because there's a line you use, which is uh, from Bailey of Keats, saying awkwardness is part of the accuracy. Can you defend a line as seemingly awkward as that? Uh, well, I think I think awkward is exactly the right word to choose. And and I think um, what Arnold is trying to do at, at, at some level of self-awareness, I'm not saying the entire thing is completely self-conscious, but I think at some level of self-awareness, he is he's writing a poetry which is emerging out of a time and out of a predicament and out of a set of emotional and human and literary circumstances that he thinks of as being profoundly unpoetic, un un unliterary. So he writes to his best friend Clough and says that one of the, the things that characterize modern life, the things that characterize modernity are blankness and barrenness and unpoetrylessness. Uh, and if you if you remember, if you keep in mind that Arnold always run, wants to write a poetry that is in some way true to the age in which he's writing, then in a funny kind of way, he's committed to writing a poetry that, that is uneasy, a, a poetry that entertains discordance and dissonance and awkwardness, to use your word. And that, I mean, that is in, in, all, in all sorts of ways a terrible line of poetry. <laughs> Who prop thou asks in these bad days my mind? But at the same time, you know, it is self-evidently a line that's coming out of what he calls himself bad days. The idea of badness, a moral badness, a political or cultural badness, sort of translates in a rather brilliant way into what in other circumstances we might think of as a poetic or an aesthetic badness. So, 
So it's a, it's a very risky kind of experiment, and he exposes himself to lots of negative sorts of remarks, which, as I, as I mentioned a moment ago, he's continued to receive ever since. But I think it's something that is, that is, that is quite, you know, quite an, an intelligent response to, to the predicament in which he found himself. You describe his poetry as being for the initiated, perhaps, precisely because of that because you have to work to understand what it's doing yep. so it's, it's, a, it's a poetry for the for the few rather than the many what would Arnold yep. have made of, of that I think he'd have mixed feelings about it I mean I think there was in Arnold as there was in all of the great Victorian liberal thinkers there was a, a very broad commitment to the democratic tendency of history that 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 as, as the franchise expanded, so, as it were, the cultural franchise would also expand, and that was a good thing. At the same time, there was also a tremendous fear, I think, about the consequences of, of, of that expansion, and um, a, a strong sense you get in all sorts of places in Arnold that um, perhaps culture is only going to be sustained w within quite, quite small, if you like, elite, Groups and and that's one of the reasons why someone like um, uh, Terry Eagleton, for example, or other uh, writers on the left dislike Arnold, because they see along with his um, liberalism a kind of commitment to the idea of culture, which actually does commit you to um, um, a, a mass civilization, but a minority culture. I'm interested in his assertion, not deep the poet sees, but wide. Yeah. Does that does that constitute a slight difference to how? Other poets would have been positioning themselves. Do you think it gave me pause for thought somehow? Well, yes, that's a th that's that's interesting. Um, I think what he's what he's what he's trying to get at when he says that sort of thing is to define himself against, let's say, for example, the Tennyson sort of lyricism, mm. which is which is a um, a kind of an introspective and inward, you know, tears, idle tears. I know not what they mean. Tears in the depths of some divine despair. Um, which comes out of a kind of romanticism, a kind of Byronic or perhaps Wordsworthian romanticism. And I think what Arnold is always trying to do is to bring into his poetry um, the idea of other sorts of perspectives or, 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 or the broad, the wide, the European view uh, that escapes merely the literature of a point of view. Um, one of the things that defines him as modern, I think, uh, Henry James famously says he is the poet of our modernity, and one of the things that defines him as modern is this idea that um, truth has become individualized. You don't, you, you no longer ask, is it true? Is it so? The modern question Arnold says in one of his essays is, is it so to me? Mm -hmm. So in one sense, that's a privatization of <coughs> truth. Yeah. But in another way, uh, everyone else can say the same thing as well. So it's de so, democratic. So well, absolutely. And it also it means that, that poetry needs to, if it's going to be true to the spirit of the age, poetry needs to kind of somehow weave into its own textures the idea of other sorts of reality or other kinds of, other kinds of perspective or other kinds of point of view. And I think that's what he means by seeing wide. It's seeing, it's seeing not just out, you know, within the terms of your own perception, but the possibility of other kinds of history or other kinds of tradition or other kinds of, 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 of position. Should we return to, to some of the poetry? Um, I'm interested in him as a technician because there's yeah. an argument he's a, he's a, he's a poor rhymer. Hmm. Um, uh, and you quote a bit. I don't know if you've got it in front of you. I've got it if you haven't. From Isolation, which he uses as an illustration of how his rhymes were rich even when they weren't successful. Right. Uh, have you got that there? I can read it out if, if, if not. The, uh, the bit, you, you quote this bit from Isolation. Shall I read yeah. it? Yes, do. 
Yet she, chaste queen, had never proved how vain a thing is mortal love, wandering in heaven far removed, but thou hast long had place to prove this truth, to prove and make thine own, thou hast been, shalt be, art alone. Yes. And I guess you, you sense these, these rhymes sound like they resolve things, but they don't quite, is that right? Yes, well, I mean, um, I th- I th- there's a tremendous self-consciousness con- uh, about um, about the literary tradition within which this poem sits, which is the tradition of love poetry. Um, and Arnold, as a love poet, is a very ambiguous creature because his love poems are often about relationships that don't seem to connect, they're, and they're almost non-love poems. All of his love poems are like that. And this is a great this is a great example. What he's talking about here is the myth of Endymion, uh, who is a you know a beautiful youth with whom mm-hmm. the moon falls in love. And, you know, obviously that's about as far away from a successful human relationship as you can imagine. Um, and as though playing on that idea of connections, human connections, love connections that don't actually connect, he does really brilliant things, it seems to me, with rhymes and non-rhymes with the word love. Love is this nightmare rhyme word <laughs> in English, which forces you to think about skies above and, and doves and <laughs> stuff like that. Here he's he's doing off rhymes, para rhymes between love and prove, which is interesting. But then he complicates that even more by having proved as another rhyme word along with removed within the same stanza. So there's a real kind of tangle of rhymes that are perhaps sight rhymes, but not real acoustic rhymes. Proved, love, removed, prove. Um, I mean, this is in some senses incompetent rhyming because it, it comp- you know it confuses and complicates what should be a a, um, a, a legible rhyme scheme in a, in a, in the hands of a more um, obviously accomplished poet like let's say Tennyson or something like that. But it seems to me within within the dramatic context of the lyric, which is that this is a poem all about the extraordinarily difficult di- difficulty of proving love, then getting all these lines these these rhymes mixed up in this way is actually brilliant. And to end with the rhyme "thine own and alone" also has a has a, 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 a brilliant sense, it seems to me, of, of um, appearing to resolve all that rather awkward acoustic tangle of the of the partial rhymes that we've had before, but also to resolve nothing really, because uh, "own" as a rhyme is is ho- wholly contained within "alone." Mm-hmm. So it's not really a good rhyme at all. It's a kind of imperfect or incomplete or, or you know, it's like a rough stab at a rhyme or an imperfect gesture towards a rhyme rather than the kind of concluding triumphant kind of couplet that you might get at the end of a Shakespeare sonnet. We've got another example of this. Now I'm going to play devil's advocate in a, in a moment, Seamus, but the, you, in the poem uh, Growing Old, you mm. talk about the avoidance of the old music of poetry with a sort of desolate scrupulosity, the idea that if it, if rhymes are too clean and pat, that would be a terrible way of describing the sort of sagging entropy of age. Yeah. Um, yeah. And let me, I'll, I'll quote a bit and, and you can you can expand on that. Uh, this is from Growing Old. It is to suffer this and feel but half and feebly what we feel deep in our hidden hearts festers the dull remembrance of a change, but no emotion, none. Yeah. And your argument, I believe, is that there's little hints of half rhyme there to illustrate the fact that he could rhyme if he wanted to, but he's really trying to demonstrate that that would be an inappropriate way of exploring old age. Yes, I think that's right. The important thing about this is it's a lyric, so it's actually set out in stanzas. So unrhymed poetry, that's not an unusual thing for the, the Victorians. I mean, Tennyson writes vast amounts of unrhymed poetry. It's called blank verse. They're used to unrhymed poetry in that sense. Um, 
And they even used, if they're really avant-garde, to free verse. You know, they might read bits of Blake or they might read Whitman or something like that. But this is different. This is actually set out in verses. So it has all the formal characteristics of something that should be rhyming. Um, And and as it were, within the Victorian ear, uh, as it were, cued by that visual prompt, that's what you'd be looking for. So Swinburne says, for example, an unrhymed lyric, says Swinburne, is a maimed thing. Um, you know, if you're going to write a lyric, something that's in verses, then it should rhyme. Otherwise, what you're what you're writing is a maimed version of what you should be doing. And it seems to me that's exactly what Arnold is doing here. And the and the maiming here is is the you know is the is the normal uh, aging process that, that that you know withers you and 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 attenuates your powers. But you're right. There is that great line and feel but half and feebly what we feel. It's a great line in its own terms, but obviously part of the greatness of that line is the fact that it's got something to do with the internal rhymes in that line. And feel the first two words, and we feel the last two words. So there's a kind of internal rhyme thing going on there. And then in the middle, feebly, which is obviously a sort of rhyme with both feel at the beginning of the line and feel at the end of the line. So, uh, but, but only a feeble one, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So there's, there's something kind of quite ingenious, it seems to me, about the way he's doing something with 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 the consonants of sound, but he's not doing it at the line endings where, as it were, a more confident or let's say a younger man's poem would do it. So here's the here's the devil's advocate argument, yeah. uh, Seamus, is that you love Arnold, and therefore every time you see maladroitness, as you put it, you find a good lit crit poetic reason for it you you don't see stumbling you see a kind of mimetic ballet in the in the in the in the poetry uh, and therefore you're looking to defend him because you value him uh, even when he may be nodding as it were uh well that's a very good point and and, and your advocacy for the devil is extremely good <laughs> um and uh, of course yes of course I'm I'm, I'm 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 absolutely open to that i'd say a couple of things one is that for my tls piece of course i've only chosen the very best examples <laughs> and and there are some examples which you know just aren't terribly uh, interesting and i think that i've chosen examples where questions of let's say feebleness or inadequacy or stumbling or or waywardness or errancy or things like that are actually what the poetry is talking about so there's some kind of connection between the the, the formal adventure that the po- poetry is doing and actually the subject that if if you were to put it into paraphrase it into prose the, the, the poem would be about another thing i'd say is that we know from reading uh, Arnold's um, prose, that he's really interested in the whole idea of error, the whole idea of mistakes and getting things wrong. He writes a series of books in the 1870s about the Bible, and he's trying to communicate to uh, the Victorian literate public um, the the latest um, advances in biblical scholarship, which are mostly being prosecuted in, in, in Germany, being pursued in Germany. And one of the things he says in that is that the Bible is not is not a perfect text. The Bible is not a text without error. If you're going into your chapel and you're being told by your preacher that the Bible is infallible, then they're wrong. The Bible is shot through with fallibility. John's John's Gospel, he says in one of his books of that period, is actually in some senses a very incompetently written work. There are all sorts of things in it that if you were a decent writer, you wouldn't have done. But the turn in his argument is to say, and that's what legitimates it. That's what makes it humanly yeah. interesting. That's what actually gives it you know, persuasiveness and em- em- emotional power and, and a kind of, um, a kind of uh, spiritual authority. That this is someone who's struggling with stuff 
that they really can't understand because human language struggles so much to cope with ideas of divinity and spirituality and all the rest of it. Now, he never actually explicitly applies all that to his own practice, and he wouldn't have compared himself to St. John, <laughs> needless to say. But there's a similar kind of interest, it seems yeah. to me, in, in, the, in, in the resources of um, what might look like an error to actually communicate something which is a kind of a truth. And one of the great things about rhyme, once you've committed yourself to, exi- to, to writing within a rhyme culture, which perhaps you don't have anymore because so much poetry doesn't rhyme normally anyway, but in, within, a, uh, within, a rhyme, within a poetic culture in which rhyme is a norm, then the decision to rhyme imperfectly or to rhyme not at all can, I think, and I would say this is true of Arnold in many cases, can be weighted and, and, and freighted with a tremendous kind of meaning and significance. Seamus, um, 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 you've convinced me utterly <laughs> uh, of that. Uh, thank you so much for, 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 for going through this and, and joining us this afternoon. My pleasure. Thank you. I just love a bit of Pratt crit. Yeah. It's just so great because, uh, I mean, I do buy that argument entirely, I think. But I just love it when you when you have someone like him, you can go through a poem and, and you read it yourself and your brain slightly goes blank and then someone points out things. Yeah. And he does he does that beautifully in this piece and he raises so many points that aren't even necessarily ones that you can only apply to, to Arnold specifically. Sure, that's right. So, um, what he was just talking about the, the difference between uh, something divine and human for example it, it reminds me of um, what Leslie Stephen said of Arnold and, and um, Seamus quotes it he says uh, Leslie Stephen, Virginia Woolf's dad of course uh, described Arnold as one of the poets um, who are made not born so you've got from the very beginning this, this which is a total this kind of hierarchy exactly yeah. this hierarchy between the poet uh, who was born a poet and who's somehow better, truer yeah. than the you know the diligent, self-made craftsman? Yeah. You know? So it I comes back to class. So it, it comes back to class, uh, like all these it things does. in and, that period. And funnily enough, the, the whole piece makes me think of what people said all the time and only now sort of stop saying is um, what, what they say about D. H. Lawrence, which was that his 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 prose was you know clumsy and he would repeat the same words and it was rough and and you know it, it just wasn't. It wasn't divine. It wasn't. It wasn't pure, or yeah. whatever it was. But this is this is exactly he's from the, the same the thing. Because he's from the Midlands. I know. I feel his pain. <laughs> and actually, Seamus Perry. Last time we spoke to him on this podcast was about exactly D. H. Lawrence. So people, if they haven't heard that, should go and uh, should go and check that out. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you are transgender and if you come out as an adult in a position of authority, a tenured professor say, non-trans people may treat you as an expert. So begins the piece this week by tenured professor Stephanie Burt, who has reviewed two books that discuss being a trans person, Trans Like Me by C.N. Lester and The Gender Games by Juno Dawson. Both may help teach the world Trans 101, provide information to non-trans people, also known as cis, and perhaps solace to trans people themselves who are looking for community and literature that speaks to them and is by them. To consider the importance of that, we are joined by Stephanie Burt on the line from Massachusetts. Stephanie, welcome. This is a very personal review, which is why it's so lovely. How did you feel reading these books, getting sent these books and, 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 and taking a look at them? Whenever one writes about anything that's you know, important, it's personal. Uh, if you're someone who studies the surface of Mars, and I'm teaching a book about the surface of Mars later today, uh, then your description of the Martian surface can be personal. But the C.N. Lester book, Trends Like Me, is very explanatory and clear and compact, and it honestly feels like they had a short word count, because the book is designed to make clear to anyone who you know, reads adult-level books about anything, not necessarily academic books or books written in challenging styles, um, designed to make clear things you need to know to be an informed community member and things you need to know if there are uh, or there might be trans people in your life, which of course means everyone, because even if you don't think you know any trans people, you probably do. They're just not out to you, and they may not want to be out to anyone. They may be stealth. Is this a book that exposes myths that, that, uh, and misunderstandings? Does it yes. set, does it... The most important one, because previous books of this kind did not do that, C.N. Lester is non-binary. C.N. Lester is someone who doesn't feel like uh, a man or a woman, um, someone who just does not fit into the existing framework, because the framework that most of us grew up with about gender is quite binary. People who are not men are women. People who are not women are men. And it's as if you had grown up in a world where everyone was either, uh, let's say, a scientist or a painter. Yeah. Uh, and then you met someone who was a professional musician, and, and they defined their life by playing music and said, well, you have to be a scientist or a painter. If, if you don't work in a lab with Bunsen burners, then you must work with oil paints. And they said, no, that, that's not who I am. Um, I would like you to understand who I am and what gives my life meaning. Um, and that seems to be how C.N. Lester 
experience as being non-binary, and I have friends who would describe it that way. Uh, I know other people, um, both uh, quite young people and grown-ups, uh, who are quite confidently non-binary in another way, which is that they're not neither nor, they're both and. Uh, they're a boy and a girl. They're a man and a woman. Um, they present in radically different ways on different days and want uh, that multiplicity of identity recognized rather than being told you've got to be one thing or the other all the time. That's experienced as confining and as, as repressive. So that's also a way of being non-binary. So C.M. Lester is doing the relatively new and important work of explaining non-binary identity to people who don't understand it or haven't sort of encountered it before. Or maybe are a bit also, nervous about it. And that, maybe are a bit nervous about it because they feel they don't and, understand it. And who it. may be nervous about it, yeah. And one of the things, there's a positive feedback loop here because the more cis people understand, cis people or cisgender people, people who are comfortable in the binary gender that most of us were assigned at birth, um, the more cis people understand and welcome uh, trans and, and other kinds of gender non-conforming identities, the more those of us who are trans and who don't fit into the gender box we were put in quite early in life, uh, the more those of us, us who, who are trans can be ourselves, um, and the better everyone's lives are. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that means that besides explaining uh, their own non-binariness, uh, Lester does some kinds of work that are very familiar to me because other writers have done this, and sometimes I have to do this. Uh, but it's work that's you know not over yet. Explaining, uh, you know, do ask us what our preferred pronouns are. Um, don't ask us anything about our body parts that you would not ask a cisgender person. Don't ask strangers about medical procedures. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've been around for a long time in one sense because there are gender non-conforming people in every society and third gender roles that are recognized and respected in many. But in another sense, this is new because the social changes and the medical procedures that allow those of us sort of raised in Western-shaped high-tech societies to be ourselves. You mentioned pronouns. Um, pronouns, yeah. Do you think, because one of the things I think fascinates me, and we'll get to the other book also, is the extent to which language matters here. Mm-hmm. Uh, how mm-hmm. important are correct use of pronouns, do you think? Is, is, is that an important step? It is quite important. It involves recognizing us as who we are, and it involves not misrecognizing us as who we're not. Your name is Stig. Uh, people who have are any first name basis with you call you Stig. Uh, and it would be disconcerting and distracting and perhaps distressing to you if people routinely called you by names that are not yours yep. or seem to recognize you as someone you don't want to be. Um, a very familiar form of this is grade school teasing, where children call other children by names they don't want and that are demeaning or inappropriate. Because we happen to be speaking a language, English, where singular third-person pronouns and some titles of respect are clearly gendered, people are sir or ma'am or miss, people are he or she, being called the wrong pronoun or addressed with the wrong gendered title of respect is distressing. And it's actually more important to me, and this is me, this isn't like all trans people everywhere, when strangers or people I've just met use the wrong pronoun or the wrong title of respect, that is intensely distressing because it means they're looking at me and they're not seeing a woman. 
Um, when people I've known for 20 years use the wrong pronoun, um, I don't mind that much because once you get an English pronoun attached to yeah. a name in your head, if you think in English, uh, it requires a good deal of effort to change this. Um, one way to fix this would be for everyone to communicate in Persian, a language that has a wonderful <laughs> poetic tradition and no genders for anything. I believe they have really? other kinds of noun declensions, like accusatives and nominatives, like yeah. Latin and Greek. But I think that Persian has no gender for anything except personal names. Do we, so do that we need... would be great, but, but you know, we're not, we're not communicating. Do we need a new pronoun? Because I, I actually find that the use of they, them, I totally understand it. But because your brain goes plural... It makes sentences sometimes, and this is not the end of the world, because it's just if a sentence is slightly hard to read, it doesn't matter. Yeah, um, so I, 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 I felt that way, you know, six years ago when I first realized that I really needed to come out and to be myself, um, that they was a little disconcerting and awkward. Um, and I've learned a couple of things, um, partly through experience and partly through uh, listening to professional linguists and people who do historical linguistics. Uh, one is that they is something that you get used to, just like people got used to Ms. in the 70s. One is that uh, the evidence of other ways that the language has changed, that spoken English has changed, suggests that it's almost always easier and less disconcerting over one generation to repurpose an existing word than to introduce a brand new word. Uh -huh. And the third thing I've learned is that all the actual candidates for brand new words are bad. Uh, if you know someone where it's really important to them that you address them as Z or E or D or any of the other proposed pronouns, um, if that's important to your friends, then call them Z. But there, I think those coinages are going to turn out to be harder to popularize than singular they. And each of those coinages has its own problems that have to do with the many different kinds of English. Because if I start calling people Z, it sounds like you're speaking comic book French. Yeah. And I know Americans who would like it to be E, E and ers. And of course, that just sounds like a bad Cockney accent. Yeah. <laughs> so this is, this is why I'm, I've become a strong partisan of singular they. But it is disconcerting when you start using it. And I've actually had that experience, too. And how, how is the media or how is publishing industry specifically? How, how is that getting on? What kind of big changes have you seen? What still needs to happen? You do point out that there is a big difference between books, of course, that are written by trans people and those that are written for trans people. Different sectors of publishing in the US and in Britain and in New Zealand, the only other country where I know something about the publishing, are responding in different ways, in different paces. All of them are moving in the right direction from what I can see, but there are different degrees of pushback and there are different speeds of motion. The sectors that are changing the fastest and in the most exciting ways, and they're sectors that I'm close to, are the world of poetry, at least in North America, in the U.S. and Canada, and the science fiction world. Oh. Um, which at, at this point, and I teach a course on this, um, <laughs> the, the science fiction world is uniquely appropriate for people where you know, history and the categories we already have and realism do not do justice to our experience, um, where we need things to change and to imagine new ways of being in order to, to feel comfortable in, in, in the world that we have, because science fiction at its best is, is there for new kinds of language. Uh, and the poetry world, again, at least in North America, 
if you've, you're in the right parts of it, has been quite welcoming. Stephanie, well, it's a real joy talking to you, and it's a lovely piece, and it's nice to, and it is optimistic. I think let's be optimistic is the is the tone to strike. Thank you very much Thank indeed you. for joining us. Thank you. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Stephanie Burt, Valeria Luiselli. Am I getting that's any better Perfect. That? No, yeah. that's brilliant. Oh, I should have just kept on going. I should have kept on going. <laughs> and Seamus Perry. Do go to the-tls.co.uk or your local shop for this week's edition of the paper, which has an art history theme. Female bohemians, Edward Lear, Hercules Sagers, the Dutch painter we've all heard of. Thea, had you heard of Hercules Sagers? Of course. Yep, I believe you. And Jonathan (laughs) Meads is also spouting off about the art world very entertainingly. Next week, we enter the world of learned journals. And also, or just journals, we call them now. Learned, with an accent on on the E. Would you say learned? You can't say learned. (laughs) No, no, it's just just funny seeing it written. No, learned journals. But we don't call it. Lucy said she doesn't want to call it learned journals. We've had magazines, we've had. Yeah. It's just interesting books, it's like exactly. interior design and, and English literature and stuff like that. We're doing talking about that and also punk Americans, Kathy Acker and Lou Harrison. So God knows what we'll be doing on this podcast. We'll work it out <laughs> shortly. But do join us to find out. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.